Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Michelle Quist, columnist with the Salt Lake Tribune, Chris Blake, partner with RRJ Consulting, and Lindsay Whitehurst, reporter with the Associated Press. I'm glad to be with you all this evening. We have a lot to get to, particularly we're starting with the legislative session. We just had the end on Friday. A lot happened on that Friday that I want to get to. Uh, and let me start with some of the stats, which I think is interesting, because people wonder how many bills are actually up there. 1,273 bill files opened. 814 of those were actually introduced. 513 bills actually passed this legislative session, and a, a few of them, quite a few of them, on the very last night of the legislative session. I want to get to a couple of those because we talked about them on the sh on the show. And, and Michelle, let's let's start with you on this transgender athlete bill. This is this is House Bill 11. Uh, we we had a little preview from it last year. Maybe you can give us a little bit of the, of where we ended last legislative session, and then what happened a little bit in this one. Well, last le le legislative session, it was uh, ended as it, it did not pass. They were going to take the time to study, um, come to a better, um, you know, negotiation or, or middle ground. This year, um, they were proposing, in, instead of a, an outright ban, they were proposing a kind of um, a board that would, uh, you know, investigate each person that came and each transgender student that wanted to participate in, in high school athletics. They would kind of decide whether they were, you know, at first, I mean, at one point they had wing stature in there and, and I think that was removed. They, they didn't get, it didn't pass. Everybody thought it was dead. Um, the filing deadline for, you know, legislative uh, races passed at 5.30 and then all of a sudden, um, Senator Dan McKay comes in with a substitute bill that is an outright rejection of transgender athletes' participation in athletics. Uh -huh. Chris, this is interesting. A couple of parts here I want to get to that Michelle just mentioned. Uh, one about kind of the, the change itself. It seemed like when they went to that last night of legislative session, there was sort of a compromise. Neither, neither side was very happy with it, but thought it was maybe going to go. Talk about sort of the politics of what happened there and why Dan McKay uh, made this change, which, which instead of this commission was an outright ban and then if there's some legal challenge, then the commission. Right, yeah, that's what I was going to note is it does have the two part. Uh, so it's always interesting, I think, when the legislature is deferring to the court. It's my understanding that they were doing that because they, they didn't feel like they could get the votes to support the commission. Uh, but yeah, the politics I think are interesting here. In my mind, a good bill has to have the three parts. There's policy, there's process, and then there's the politics of it. And I'm not sure that they, they hit on all, all uh, on the right ends there. Uh, I think, you know, what you see from our governor as he talked immediately about a veto is he's talking about, you know, what is the right policy? I don't know what that is. There's, I think there's legitimate issues and concerns to be discussed and debated here uh, and not suggesting the commission does that. But um, the governor, I think, is about is worried and looking at what is the tone we're setting 
and what is the image of the state and so and that goes into both the politics of that which people are viewing in a different perspective and so uh, yeah but interesting challenge and and I think we're gonna see a lot more on this bill play out here over the next couple yeah, of weeks and months I think that's true. Lindsay, talk about what Michelle brought up too, what, you're, what you heard on the Hill this time. There was, there's a lot of speculation, in fact, quite a few news articles that, that seem to suggest the legislature waited until after the filing deadline. I want to talk about that for just a minute too. The filing deadline was five o'clock on Friday. These changes happen after. What did you hear from legislators, people on the Hill about that assertion? Well, I think one thing to, to note in the background of all of this as we start this conversation is right now, this is a very small group of students that we're talking about. There's four kids who have been through there already is a process if kids want to participate um, and it includes a year of, of hormone therapy and so there's only four students who have gone through that process and are playing um, in these uh, student mm -hmm. sports right now and there's no there's no uh, nothing public anyone saying that they have any kind of competitive advantage that's that's the overarching concern here is that that transgender students could have some kind of competitive advantage in girls sports and um, the folks that support a band say that's a small group now in the future that could change and there's there's a lot of conversation to be had around that there was a full year of negotiations over this issue but right now we are talking about a very small group of kids but for Governor Cox, what he mentioned in his, his proclaiming he would veto it is that it sends a wider message to a group of students. You don't belong in this very important ritual of, of American, for American kids, you know, sports are an important thing, teamwork, playing together. There's lots of other things besides just competition that are involved in, in sports. And so, so there's, there's a lot to work out there. There are, it's a very charged issue right now, nationally speaking, you know, it's, it's something where there's a lot of, a lot of discussion and a lot of conversation about this issue, um, but it is in Utah, especially a very small group of students that we're, we're talking about here. And I think, I think one thing that this reflects is that you know we we really pride ourselves in Utah, the Utah way, having respectful dialogue and coming to some kind of compromise. And and I think it kind of reflects when you know we have this much more acrimonious national political picture, and and that does kind of seep in in, in Utah. And it's getting it's getting harder on some of these hot button issues to to find something that that every Everybody can can live with, you know, um, and and so yeah, it'll it'll be a veto from Cox this year. There there will be efforts at a veto override. Whether those will be successful is very much um, an open question. But I, I do think there's a fair chance we could see this come back again next mm -hmm. year too. Chris, I want to get that veto override for just a second. You you were chief of staff in the legislature, so you know how this works. People are speculating about whether or not the legislature might try to do a veto override. Just tell us really quickly how does that work internally? You've been part of it. Yeah, certainly. I mean. Leadership has, uh, as they do in all things in the Utah legislature, a big hand in how that gets determined. Ultimately, they, the leadership needs to determine, do they have the votes? They need 20 votes in the Senate and 50 votes in the House in order to override a, a governor's veto. And they have to decide, can I get to that, that threshold? Now, neither body made that threshold uh, in the original vote, and so it would actually it would absolutely take some work from the members of leadership to to recruit or find those votes in order to get that override. Um, you know, I think it's important to note any bill can be vetoed. You know, we often talk, oh, it's got veto override. It's it's really just an indicator. Can this what was this bill? Did it have the votes at the beginning? And this one did not. But uh, it, it it's not that far off either. And so it's it's certainly within the realm of possibility in my mind. But e even if the veto is overridden, this this bill is is likely unconstitutional. They know it, and the concern here is that it others. Um, I'm using that as a verb. It others a very small group of, of kids, of students. 
And what happened, you know, what happens next is, is really important. I mean, last year, Florida passed this same type of bill. This year, Florida passed, you can't even say gay in the classroom. Idaho just, just you know, um, passed a bill that would criminalize, make a, a lifetime sentence for parents of transgender kids. This is not the way this conversation should be going. Um, throughout the session, the conversation was there, the dialogue was there, and, and, and the parties from all sides were coming together. This last minute, we're gonna do it this way, you know, ram it through, is, is just not the way it should have been done. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is the time that was spent on this greatly impacted the number of other bills that were passed. I wanna get to one of those, Lindsay, because this was, was a bill that was very controversial going into the last days of, of the legislative session. Legislature didn't get to it. This is this is House Bill 60 on the the vaccine passport bill. They didn't get to it, but maybe give us a little context on this because it really motivated our business community to get involved. And and of course it 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 also motivated some strong feelings from from some folks who came up to the Capitol and uh, and made those feelings known. Yeah, talk um, about that. In, in, there was uh, one one gentleman, I believe, in a hearing who was actually uh, taken away uh, by by troopers. Whether he was officially arrested or not, I'm not totally sure. But it, it's the kind of thing that looked a lot like that mm -hmm. at the time. Um, so there's some very strong feelings around this issue. I mean, and and, um, and that's probably not a not a surprise to anybody, right? Um, but especially after um, the uh, the Utah Jazz stopped recording. Requiring um, vaccination, proof of vaccination to come in. It's not something that's terribly widespread in Utah that, that people are, are needing to show that vaccination card. And of course, um, the, uh, business owners who, who who do have some level of requirement, um, you know, felt like this is this is my private business and I should be able to make these decisions on my own. Um, and so so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out by next year. I don't know. We may be in a different place when it comes to the pandemic altogether. But um, well, Lindsay made the point earlier about the national politics seeping into this, and this is absolutely what we're seeing here. I think Utah has done a pretty remarkable job as in terms of managing COVID. A lot of the things you hear about didn't happen. We didn't define essential employees. We didn't do a lot of other things that other states had to do. And if not for the federal vaccine mandates, I don't think we would have seen this bill. But this bill was seriously problematic from uh, the perspective of you know, are we going to get involved in private business, the decisions they make, the contracts they have? So I'm, I'm happy uh, that, it, that it didn't pass, but, uh, and, and hopefully just the air is out of the room now, um, and, but uh, certainly a, a concern from the business community perspective in terms of just how to administer this, how to deal with this, because there are so many things they have to do uh, in, in terms of making sure their employees are safe, their customers are safe, and managing those risks. Mm -hmm. Maybe we're not giving Senator McKay the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he meant to pass a bill that he knew would be vetoed in order to have this run out of time so that nobody would have to, put, you know, put a, a yes or no on it. Okay, all the strategy involved in you politics. <laughs> okay, I wanna get to the budget for just a minute because uh, this is a $25 billion budget, uh, pretty huge uh, for the state of, of Utah. I wanna get to a couple of those budget items. Chris, I wanted you to describe for just a second this this $1 billion put into transportation and transit because that is gonna be a, a huge thing for the state. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it is, it's something that has been not well, I don't mean well reported on, it's been talked about, but this is such a significant step 
first of all, first of all, one billion dollars in cash, and we've done big bonds before, other things like that. But they put one billion dollars of cash into transportation. In addition to that, uh, they included money for active transportation, bike, road trails that people can use, and also 150 million. Well, it's actually like 280 million into transit, double tracking a front runner and the point of the mountain transit line. The state has never put money in transit projects before. So when we talk about multimodal and really changing the way we think about moving people and goods, the state is making a significant investment and it is unlike anything we've ever seen. And so kudos to the state for moving this direction. We've been working on this for a number of years and this is the fruition of it and I couldn't be more excited about it. Mm -hmm. uh, a tremendous amount of money to education, Lindsay. This, this is about a 9% increase. Right, and I think one one kind of small piece of that that's interesting to me as a parent is uh, the full day kindergarten. Um, that conversation, not as much money as originally um, intended, did end up going to that. But um, but I think that'll it'll be interesting to see how that plays out for parents because it's it's not an option for everyone to have that that full day kindergarten, and um, it's not necessarily something everyone wants to take advantage of. But um, but I think it's 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 definitely something that's had a lot of conversation. And yeah. early on, what are what's what are we teaching our kids? How or what options are there for, for parents. I think that's that was an interesting conversation to watch at the legislature this year. Yeah. Michelle, this conversation goes all the way back to like 2000 when yeah. we saw a, a bill that was put forward for all day, all day K. Right. So the funding wasn't quite where uh, it was initially planned, but talk about what, what might happen next for this. Well, I like how the data is is pushing these bills. You know, the, the transportation funding, our demographics require it, we're only growing. You know, the kindergarten bill, more women are working full time. Um, our kids do better if they're in full day kindergarten. Again, it's not a requirement that kids go to full day, you know, kind of kindergarten, but those families who need it or who want it, you know, the, the opportunity should be there and it shouldn't um, depend on what school district you're in. Mm -hmm. And um, so I love that the demographics of Utah and that the values of Utah are really driving these legislative decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, one last bill uh, I think is interesting too is we've had the discussion in the state about medical marijuana. Lindsay, this, this year we had a discussion about psilocybin, mushrooms. Right, and I was so interested to see the way, it was a different conversation than when we first started talking about medical marijuana in Utah. There was a lot of, of consternation over that, multiple years of conversation in the legislature, finally a ballot initiative um, before the, the eventual compromise that, that allowed medical marijuana in Utah. And and this particular bill, it, it, it just studies it. It doesn't actually allow its usage yet, um, but um, but it, it pretty much sailed through. I mean, yeah. the, the lawmakers yeah. are looking at this in a very different way it seems to me. And it did come in under the radar. There was not a lot of information about it. I'd like to see the data mm -hmm. that's supporting it and who's pushing it and where the money's coming from. Yeah, we'll, we'll follow this one closely. An interesting development. Not a lot of conversation, though, at least mm -hmm. in the press. So we'll watch that one closely. Okay, I want to get into you know, the kind of the politics of candidacy, because <laughs> this has been a big week. Uh, Chris, talk about um, it's kind of this unique situation we had this year. We don't usually have the filing deadline during the legislative session. What kind of impact might that, have ha might, might that have and did it have on the number of people who decided they were going to file this year? Yeah, I, 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 important to note that the filing deadline is now going to move to the first week of January. So going forward in the session, though that final session going into the election year, people are going to know who's filed against them and what the dynamics are. And I think that does have the potential for really impacting the way some people react to that. I, I don't know the total number of candidates. I would actually be surprised if it's really that significant of a difference from years past. In fact, I felt like it was a little bit lower. There's often mm -hmm. uh, candidate challenges, particularly in redistricting. There's a lot of change moving around and people all of a sudden end up in different districts. And so I didn't think it was that surprising, but there are a couple of candidates um, 
that have what look like significant in-party yeah. challenges on both sides, uh, the Republicans and the Democrats. Uh, specifically in the Senate, I'm thinking Senator Kitchen has a, a challenger, Senator Vickers, um, Senator Milner. There, there are going to be some interesting challenges there. Yeah, absolutely. And so, the, you know, but this is the the beauty of the process. They can go and. Uh, defend their record and defend what they're working on and what they're doing and let the people decide and and uh, we'll see we'll see yeah. who comes back up we will Michelle you're a former candidate I mean talk about kind of the, what goes through one's mind when you're doing that filing are people waiting for the session if it goes earlier how does that impact sort of how people vote? are you people pulling punches because they're worried about challengers um, I, I mean it's hard to know I mean I think it did definitely affect things this year because of the you know it was changed mid-session and you know it was you know it it was, I think it affected things this year. Um, I am a former candidate, a former failed candidate. Um, you know, it, it's hard to decide whether, whether to go in. And um, the, the, the travesty that I see is those um, spots that aren't opposed. I think every race should always be opposed. I think we should have conversations and candidates good enough in this state to have a dialogue with each other um, about ideas and not about personalities. Mm -hmm. Let's break down a couple of those points because we have some in the House of Representatives, 22, Lindsay, 22 representatives are facing interparty challengers. In the Senate, 10 senators are facing interparty challengers, including, as Chris just mentioned, some pretty high profile members of our legislature. Even they are getting challengers. Talk about that for just a moment because that's, that's a pretty good number and we still have quite a few that don't have challengers at all. This is this is the time of year where like I don't envy anybody who's yeah. in the process. I think they're great conversations, and I'm really glad that we'll be having them both within within parties and and um, with and, you know in between the two parties. I think some really good things and really good conversations can come out of there. But man, it's a lot of work. It's a <laughs> lot of work, and and it's not it's not a this portion of it especially is not a highly paid thing. And so your hat's got to be off to anybody who's getting in that ring at this point in time, right? Just yeah. to be able because you put a lot of your own time, a lot of your own money into into these races that um, that there is not a massive group of people paying attention to. More people should be paying attention, but not necessarily a huge number of people are are getting in the mix. So you you gotta you gotta respect anybody who's gonna go into the ring, who's gonna have those conversations and, and do that work because yeah. it's important. However, the incumbent really is um, hard to overcome. You know, Absolutely. just the idea of it too. I think the one thing that is still making a difference is the recent change to not have one box at the top that says, you know, one party, yeah. Republican or Democrat. I think it makes the voter go through each candidate, and I still think that's really helping. Mm -hmm. The other election you didn't mention, Jason, is the State Board of Education. Mm -hmm. uh, it, this is its second cycle as a partisan elected mm -hmm. position, and there is a lot of challengers in there. A couple of folks that didn't run, uh, the chair, Mark Huntsman's running for the state legislature. Uh, I think Laura Belknap withdrew from her race. But there's there's actually a lot of energy wow. there, particularly as you think about some of the issues around COVID and mm -hmm. how parents have felt. And so there's a lot of energy in those races, and now that it's a, a partisan election, I think that's going to be interesting what impact that has as we move forward that's, as well. That's such a good point because there's so much, so much of the the. Dis the disagreements and conversations we're having as a culture are playing out in schools, no at question. school boards yeah. right now. And it's it's really true. What what may have at one point been a kind of a sleepy arena is not anymore, and it's yeah. an important one. Well, it's so interesting. Uh, there are 28 people who have filed for those state school board positions. And I think that's an interesting point, too, Michelle, just the last part on this. There was a time when you talked to most people, and they'd say, who's your state 
who's on the state board, and they say, I have no idea who that is. Uh, particularly given the issues that happened over the last couple of years, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. There is definitely interest in who's making these decisions. Yes, the, there there is interest, and there's knowledge of what's going on. Facebook, you know, has really helped to um, push out uh, certain people, certain personalities, and, and the ideas that they are bringing to the board. And um, people are pushing back against that. Yeah, they are. Uh, let's talk about the Senate races for a second. A lot of interesting dynamics. Uh, this is the Mike Lee race. Let's get into that one for, for just a moment. Uh, seven Republican candidates, Chris, have filed for that particular race. Uh, we know some of the names. Some of the names we're start, just starting to get to know. Talk about uh, what kind of, kind of an insider's perspective on this. Why does Mike Lee have so many internal challengers? Well, I think Mike Lee's high profile, and it's a position that people, to, to Michelle's point, that people want to have some conversations about ideas and, and what uh, Senator Lee has been espousing and, and pushing. Um, I, I, based on my caucus experience, Senator Lee's probably in pretty good shape. I, I'll tell you one of the things that I found interesting. Um, Becky Edwards uh, was much more uh, mentioned at, at my caucus down in Utah County than, than I expected, to be honest. And I thought that was interesting. She had, she definitely had some supporters. They didn't necessarily fare well in some of the caucuses that I witnessed and saw. Uh, but yeah, there's there's going to be some energy there. Uh, clearly, there's going to be a primary. I believe uh, Becky already has the signatures, and there are others that are aiming for that. And so this is going to be a, a drawn-out race, and Senator Lee's going to have to share his ideas and push what he wants to see accomplished and the direction he wants to go. And people will have the chance to say if that's the, the direction they want or not. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to catch the wind of the populace at a caucus meeting now because so few people attend. I had five people in my precinct, whereas for the past, you know, obviously not two years ago, because there wasn't one, but four years ago, six years and eight mm -hmm. years ago, there were 50, 60, yeah. um, five. We had five, you know, and, and, and so I think, yeah, Senator Lee's uh, supporters showed up, but um, Becky's already on the, on the um, ballot, and I think people are um, disillusioned or, with politics in general, with the state of national affairs, um, with some of the statements maybe Senator Lee has said. And, um, you know, people people like change and they like a good they like like a good race. Wow. Talk about this good race, Lindsay. There's an interesting dynamic happening in this race that I'm not sure I've seen exactly before. Uh, the, uh, there's a Democratic challenger, Kale Weston, but there's this, this movement from high-profile Democrats in the state, like Ben McAdams, even like Mayor Jenny Wilson, who are supporting the independent candidate, Evan McMullen. Right, exactly. That's been interesting to see a couple of very prominent Democrats in Utah. Um, ben McAdams came fairly early. It was a while back that that he came and um, endorsed Evan McMullen and feeling like this is this is the the guy who's going to best represent my values as a as a moderate Democrat. And of course, Jenny Wilson just recently. And so there are some folks who who even say the Democrats shouldn't run anybody. Yeah. So that this race will be strictly between Mike Lee and Evan McMullen. And of course, historically, independent candidates, it's tough. It is you know when you're not attached to a major party, it's it's tough to get that traction. McMullen, of course, is a little bit different because he had this previous run for president where he did quite well in the state of Utah. He has perhaps a little higher profile, more name recognition than your typical independent. Mm -hmm. And um, and of course, Democrats in Utah have, you know, in the minority, always have some, some kind of a little bit different view on things than a typical <laughs> a typical uh, two party you know where where it's yeah. more of a 50-50 kind of split you saw some some uh, self-avowed democrats registering as as republicans in the past for in a governor's election so um so the the politics of being a democrat in utah are always a little interesting a little bit different and it'll be interesting to see whether whether um, they do end up um you know getting really lining up behind uh, Evan McMullen in this one
One of the th I was going to say, what, I, I have two thoughts here. One is, uh, sorry to cut you off, Michelle. I, one is, if the Democrats can get their, their candidate out of the race, I think it does make it a much more interesting general election race. No question about it. But I do want to say, I don't know who Evan McMullen is. <laughs> And I, I think he he's has to do, I mean, he's either going, going to be defined or he has to define himself because mm -hmm. he's a little bit, he's this enigma of, okay, he ran against Trump, he got support because of the dynamics in 2016, but I don't know who the guy is. I, I don't even know if he's, when the last time he lived here is, and I'm not saying that to knock on him, but he's got to define himself. And there are people that just don't know who he is. He's almost sort of a figment like, oh, he's this perfect candidate because we don't really know who he is. So Yeah, this candidacy drives me nuts for two reasons. <laughs> Um, I'm a rules follower, like I, you know, I, I go by the rules and, and yeah, the independent party, you know, he, he's going by the rules, but you know, we, that's not the system we usually use. And if anybody's going to jump out and run as an independent, it should have been a woman, not a white male. I'm sorry to say it out loud, but there are enough regular paths for white males to come and show us why we should vote for them. And number two. I want the Democrats to do better. I want them to field a candidate that Utahns want to vote for. Chris, is there any any chance the Democrats try to pressure to not have a candidate? I mean, it just seems so odd that this is even pressuring a pressure candidates point. to get out is usually not a good strategy, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, and I'm not sure what they would use to do that. I, you know, so I, I would suspect that he stays in. I don't see the reason he gets out, and for the same reason. Michelle mentions, I mean, they, they can't just not field a candidate for the biggest race of this election cycle. That's just terrible for them as a party and their viability going forward. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, uh, we have uh, some of our other congressional districts uh, are up for election, too. Maybe, Lindsay, let's just talk th about that for a moment, because we have, well, all of them have challengers, which is interesting. The ones that have the most, District 1, Blake Moore, uh, has their six candidates in that race, uh, six candidates in District 2 uh, with Chris Stewart. Interestingly, uh, 10 candidates uh, have filed against John Curtis, and just for the th thoroughness, um, four candidates on Burgess Owens. It's interesting. We have so many candidates filing for these races. Uh, any initial thoughts about what we're seeing right there? Well, you know, and for a long time, that fourth district where Burgess Owens has been has been the one that is most purple-ish. You know, that's where Ben McAdams was was able to to win as a Democrat in Utah, which is not a super easy feat. Um, and, and it's also interesting because he is perhaps the most um, far right of all of those congressional uh, folks that we have right now. And um, and so it's interesting that he's drawing the fewest challengers, right? Um, so so apparently that would perhaps be an indication that. Um, that people feel like he's not the one they want to go up against, and and so that's not not necessarily how you typically think of that district, mm -hmm. but um, but it, it would seem that he's got the the easiest path forward so far. Um, of course, other incumbents like Chris Stewart are quite well established, and it's really it is really hard to kind of overcome that that incumbent um, thing right that's there, true. right? There's one aspect we haven't talked about that I'm curious if you have heard about it from any of the caucuses before we leave this. A lot of these candidates are going to get signatures. You know, we, we've seen Chris Stewart has not done this. Uh, when he's been running, any of you, any any undercurrents here about retaliation, or is that even a thing anymore? No, I it it, I mean it is, you know, by one faction of the state central committee on the Republican Party, but they don't they don't ever get anywhere. Signatures is a thing to stay. Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting is all these incumbents have new constituents too. I mean, my district changed. Um, I I'm, I have a different rep now, and um, so they had to take that into account too. But um, yeah, no, I, th I think signatures are here. And I, I agree with Michelle. Even more so, I think, as we go forward, because of the filing deadline change, 
um, tying it essentially to when people are declaring that they're getting signatures or beginning the session and more runway between that and when the convention slash primary happen. If there are people that don't, I think they're going to get signatures. I believe it's political malpractice not to. You should give yourself every option uh, for the people to vote on you. And so I think that's Which going is to why happen. Senator Lee gets signatures. Exactly. You know, even the staunch ones that yeah. are, were against SB 54 get signatures. You know, this is, we didn't ha uh, fight over that issue this year in the legislature. How many, at least the last two or three sessions we've been fighting over that at some point in this session. I don't remember it uh, being a fight right. this year. Yeah. The I, that's one thing we avoided. Yeah, an interesting <laughs> point. I, I want to end on one note here that happened in Washington, D.C. Something that our, even our delegation was completely united on was uh, some funding to go to Ukraine. Uh, Chris, maybe just give us a little bit on that. $13.6 billion in emergency f uh, spending to the crisis in Ukraine. Just a little bit about what you're seeing and hearing in Utah with the support here. Well, I'm certainly pleased they did. I think it's important to remember that uh, we had a big battle over funding going to Ukraine uh, just a couple of years ago that led to the impeachment of a president. And so it's good to see people rallying towards this cause now. Uh, I think it's been important. And uh, I've one of the issues that I've cared mostly about is this issue around NATO and making sure that we have a strong defense and that we have a strong alliance. And I'm pleased that it's it's led to a stronger, more unified NATO. And um, let's hope that the best for, for the conflict to resolve and, and the people of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Michelle, it seems to be something that is supported both sides of the aisle. Oh, yeah. every And Utahns. Utah, the populace mm -hmm. supports it. Um, th there's no... Uh, room here for anyone who thinks that it's okay to go and invade a, a sovereign country. Mm -hmm. in, in our last 20 seconds or so, Lindsay, uh, what you're hearing from people that you're interviewing about this this conflict? You know, I covered the rally on the steps of the Capitol, um, the, and, and it was incredible to see people all together, all all united around a single feeling, chanting "No war" and things like that, and and that was that was a, a cool moment. Yeah, it was. We're watching this one closely. I know from D.C., but certainly here at home as well. Thank you for your insights uh, this evening. A very important discussion. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.